0: This Day in Crime is released every day, Monday through Saturday. For ad-free listening and exclusive bonus content, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus at tenderfootplus.com or on Apple Podcasts. Let's start the show. Welcome back to the show. I'm Todd McComas, and it's Friday. Time to prepare for the weekend, which is tougher for some of us this week than others because for many of us in the U.S., Old Man Winter has delivered a beatdown. It's colder than Ted Bundy's soul outside. It's cold like this that reminds me that men have nipples too. You know what else is cold? Crime. So let's get into it. A convicted killer gets new help. A rapist fakes his own death. A 15-year-old mastermind. A literal dead duck. Racist road rage. And a school shooting under scrutiny. All coming up on this Day in Crime. Remember Scott Peterson, the guy in 2004 who became the most hated man in America? Well, He's back in the news. Scott Peterson, the man who bears a striking resemblance to actor Dean Cain, who played him in the made-for-TV movie, received the death penalty in 2005 after being convicted of the murder of his pregnant wife, Lacey. Now, for those who aren't old enough to remember this story, during the investigation into his wife's disappearance, Peterson was described by everyone that knew him as a loving husband and expectant father. But that all changed after it became public that he was having an affair with a woman named Amber Fry. Then he became the biggest piece of shit in history and the prime suspect in his wife's disappearance. Prosecutors claimed that on Christmas Eve 2002, Peterson killed his wife and took her body from their home in Modesto, California and dumped her from his fishing boat into the San Francisco Bay that's where her body washed ashore in April 2003 Peterson admitted he was fishing on the day his wife disappeared because as we all know the fishing is always best on Christmas Eve and he claimed that's why investigators discovered he had researched ocean currents for that day. He also bought a boat without telling anyone and when asked by investigators he was not able to tell them what type of fish he was trying to catch that day very sketchy to say the least Also, in the weeks that followed Lacey's disappearance, well before she was found dead, he sold his wife's car, looked into selling their house, turned their baby nursery into a storage room, and told his massage therapist mistress that his wife was dead. Shortly thereafter, he was arrested, convicted, and sentenced to death. In August 2020, the California Supreme Court reversed his death sentence after finding out the jurors were erroneously dismissed because they had expressed objections to the death penalty on their questionnaire. That's a big no-no, so he was resentenced in 2021 to life without parole. Peterson got media murdered when he showed no remorse at his resentencing, but his attorney said he showed no remorse because he was not guilty. Could that possibly be true? Well, Peterson is now seeking new DNA testing and the Los Angeles Innocence Project has announced that it is taking on his case to help him do so. When asked about their assistance with this case, a spokesperson for the organization said simply, it is investigating his claim of innocence and offered no further comment. One of the jurors in Peterson's trial, Mike Belmissiri, said he stands by the jury's initial verdict and when asked about new evidence, he said... If there's something new, it's something we didn't hear. Good job, Mike. That's why they're describing it as new. This is certainly a case we're interested in, so we'll keep you updated on any and all new developments. Because as Mike would tell you, those are developments you haven't heard. We got a strange one going on in Utah County, which, by the way, I just learned is in Utah, where authorities have arrested a man after his resurrection. And in a crazy twist, his resurrection is not real, because he was never dead to begin with. If you're confused, that's because I'm a clever writer. A decade after the alleged rape of a 21-year-old woman in Orem, Utah, Nicholas Aldiverdian was named as a suspect when the Utah State Crime Lab hammering through a backlog of sexual assault kits, identified his DNA. Then in August 2020, just months before rape charges were filed against him, an obituary reported his death on February 29, 2020, due to non-Hodgkin lymphoma. The obituary reported that on his purported deathbed, he was surrounded by his wife, their two children, and extended family. And that his final words to them were, fear not, and run toward the bliss of the sun. It's also noted that after his death, his ashes were scattered at sea. A scene right out of some shitty movie on Lifetime. But his former lawyer made no bones about the fact he thought this was all bullshit and that Oliverdian was still very much alive. I'm guessing he hadn't been paid yet but nearly two years later, Oliverdian was arrested in Glasgow, Scotland while being treated at a hospital there for COVID-19. So we have at least one positive thing to come out of the pandemic. When he appeared virtually in a Utah court this week to face his rape charges, he spoke in a British accent and told the judge that they had the wrong man and that his name is Arthur Knight Brown. And when the prosecutor told the court that Alaverdian had used no less than 10 aliases since being extradited back to utah Alaverdian interrupted and said in his best british accent objection me lighty that is complete hearsay which i'm sure sounded way better than my best australian accent this is another story i'd like to keep tabs on so no worries i'll keep you updated mike If you're a Tinderfoot Plus subscriber, keep enjoying your ad-free experience. For everyone else, we'll be right back after this break.
1: Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android.
0: The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. Mm-hmm. No one's answering. I'm Peter Van Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. The late, great Whitney Houston and I have always shared a belief in two things. Crack is whack, and children are our future. And I'm not sure the latter of those two is a good thing in 2021 prosecutors in tazewell county illinois charged 15-year-old dahlia bolan of hiring 20-year-old nathaniel maloney 19-year-old andre street and 21-year-old sage raber to murder her parents their plan was hashed out over electronic devices because they're young and stupid according to authorities bolan agreed to provide the crew with guns and to pay them one hundred thousand dollars out of her parents' life insurance policy. Boland's mother, Rebecca, was killed in the plot, but her father, Douglas, survived his injuries. Maloney and Street were accused of carrying out the attack while Raber waited in a getaway car outside the Bolin's home. Dahlia Boland then reported to police that her parents were victims of a robbery because, just as a reminder, she's young and stupid. All four pleaded guilty this week to first-degree murder, attempted first-degree murder, Conspiracy to commit, you guessed it, first degree murder. Bolin was initially charged as a juvenile until her case was moved to adult court where she received 60 years in prison. Maloney was sentenced to 66 years, Street to 55 years, and Raber, the getaway driver, to 30 years. I think I'm going to call my son after the show and just thank him for never murdering me. I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but a rapper was shot and killed in Chicago. A federal jury has convicted six gang members in the 2020 fatal shooting of Chicago rapper F.B.G. Duck. Now, I can only assume one of the biggest problems with having the name Duck is that when someone tries to warn you that you're about to be shot, you think they're yelling Duck to just get your attention federal prosecutors alleged Duck's murder was part of long-running violence over gang territories on the city's south side. FBG Duck, whose real name was Carlton Weekly, a name that would certainly hamper album sales, was shot 16 times outside the luxury clothing store Dolce & Gabbana in Chicago's upscale Gold Coast neighborhood. The jury convicted Charles Liggins, 32, Kenneth Roberson, 30, Christopher Thomas, 24, Marcus Smart, 25, to Carlos Offered 32, and Ralph Turpin, 34, of murder in the aid of racketeering and conspiracy to commit murder. Sentencing hearings for all six are scheduled for August and September, but just know this. In the federal system, a conviction of murder in aid of racketeering comes with a mandatory life sentence. Hey, gangs, knock it off. Two of my biggest bugaboos are road rage and racism. It's also my least favorite use of alliteration. But unfortunately, this next story has both. Dean Kapsalas of Hudson, Massachusetts was convicted by a jury last year of second-degree murder and violation of constitutional rights in the killing of Henry Tapia. Here's what happened. Kapsalis and Tapia got into an argument on January 19, 2021. Investigators learned that as the argument ended, Kapsalis shouted a horrific racial slur at Tapia and then hit him with his pickup truck as he drove away. And sadly, Tapia died at a hospital from his injuries. And for the commission of this hate crime, Kapsalis was sentenced this week to life in prison. So good riddance. Hey racists, Knock it off. And finally, the Department of Justice has completed their probe into the response to the mass shooting at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas on May 24th, 2022. And their conclusion does not bode well for the law enforcement agencies that handled it. According to Justice Department officials, police officials waited way too long to confront the gunman They acted with no sense of urgency in establishing a command post, and they communicated inaccurate information to grieving families. This report describes the actions of law enforcement's handling of this massacre as cascading failures. According to the report, while these compounding failures allowed this crisis to go on for far too long, terrified students trapped inside the classrooms called 911 and begged for officers to make entry. And while that was happening, agonized parents pleaded with law enforcement to go inside and save their children. Attorney General Merrick Garland said yesterday at a news conference, had law enforcement agencies followed generally accepted practices in active shooter situations and gone right after the shooter, lives would have been saved. And just as a reminder, 19 children and two faculty members were killed in this attack. Now, as someone who's received a lot of active shooter training over the course of my career, I can tell you that police are trained to act as quickly as possible. And contrary to other situations that also call for an officer to force entry into a building and address an armed suspect, we are taught that active shooter situations demand that officers prioritize saving innocent lives over their own safety. And according to this report from the Justice Department, officers at this scene failed to do that. I'm sure there's gonna be some people suffering repercussions from these findings, so we'll be sure to share those with you as they're announced. And that's a wrap on this week's crime stories, but make sure you tune in tomorrow so you can go back in crime with Jessica Knoll. I'll see you on Monday. I got to go shovel some snow. This day in crime is a production of Kinderfoot TV in partnership with Odyssey produced in association with Burning Mountain Productions. Executive producers are Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay. Jessica Nola and myself are co-executive producers. Today's episode is hosted and written by me, Todd McComas. You've been listening all week to my other co-hosts and writers, Laura Benson and Eric Quintana. Sean Nerney is our lead producer and editor. John Street and Tracy Kaplan are the supervising producers along with additional productions by Dennis Cooper, Dayton Cole, Cena Pritchard, and Jordan Foxworthy. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. The cover art is by Byron McCoy and Isabella Maxey. Special thanks to the team at UTA, Beck Media & Marketing, and the Nord Group. Sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes, and you can follow us on social media at This Day in Crime. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. And don't forget to check out Saturday's Back in Crime episode written and hosted by Jessica Knoll. I'll see you on Monday.